0: Welcome to episode 43 of the Camerosity, (coughs) the Camerosity podcast, the world's longest running (coughs) the world's longest running open source film photography podcast. My (coughs) name, my name is Mike Ackman. (coughs) Oh,
1: no, Mike does not sound very good tonight. You think he's okay? Oh, look, he's, he's slumped over
2: have a 45-year-old
1: male chief complaint chest pain. Mike, Mike, speak to us. Oh my god. Is, is, is there a poke feature on Zoom? I think he's gone. Yeah. Oh no. I think he's dead, yeah. Oh man. Well, we better carry on from the swamps of Gainesville, Florida, comes one of your camerosity co-hosts, Anthony Rue. How are you doing today, Anthony? Well, I'm uh, a little worried about my buddy Mike over there, to tell you the truth. And
3: here in Yellow Springs, Ohio, it's international camera broker, Paul Rybolt Filling in for Mike tonight would be Theo Panagopoulos.
4: (laughs) Hello, everybody. From sunny Sydney, it's Theo Panagopoulos. So welcome, everybody. Uh, I think we've got a great show on. I'm all about Graflex and 4x5, minus Mike, but uh, I'm hoping he'll, he'll he might revive at some point. But it's not looking good at the moment.
1: Hey Theo, before we uh, dive into the world of, of press cameras and 4x5, how was your day at the camera market? You find anything fun?
4: I did. I did. I came across a Voigtlander prominent, so I'm I'm very very happy about that. Ooh. It it came home with me. So it's not something you can leave behind at a camera market. So this
3: is the, uh, this is the first episode that we've really ever devoted much time at all to, to Graflex. And I was, I was going through mine today. I had a, a friend who uh, I was his camera scout for about 25 years. And he was an old bachelor and he uh, collected cameras. And I scouted for him and I found him cameras. Well, it turned out his favorite camera of all were any speed or, or crown graphic. And what I learned was that there were a huge number of variations in those cameras, not just by, you know, the model or the anniversary or century or or whatever, but also by the lens the lens and shutter possibilities and, and other things that went into it. So, unfortunately, he passed away about three years ago and left me his collection. So I wound up with roughly 50 or 60 uh, Graflex cameras, and many of which I had already got him. So I had to find my favorite, and my favorite turned out to be a crown graphic with a top-mounted viewfinder. And the reason for it was that it was plastic rather than (laughs) that funky leather over wood. I stripped it down, I took every single piece of it off that I could get off, like the flash bracket, the viewfinder with the little funky viewfinder that was on it, and uh, made it into a field camera, which I I still have and still use. Well I'll say that before
1: just before the pandemic um I'd never shot large format in my life and I never thought about shooting large format and found it just to be incredibly intimidating and it was it was Simon and the guys over on the Classic Lens podcast were like just get a just get a crappy press camera you know just you know, go out there spend 50 bucks you know it may self destruct but it'll at least let you understand what it's about. So I went out and got a a Burke and James press camera for fifty dollars, and I just kind of fell in love with it. It's one of those things where I'd always seen them, but did not understand them at all. And that was sort of my test bed to learn four by five, and then uh, I blundered into a super graphic. uh It was somebody that was selling one in a you know in the original suitcase with thirty film holders that were all preloaded with like twenty year old film that had like molded into place literally with mold into place and the the flash and the, it was like literally somebody's press kit from who knows how 1965 I don't I don't know but to this day that's all that I know about Graphlex is uh, that super graphic because i find just the variety of cameras that are sold under the Graphlex name to be bewildering i wouldn't know a century graphic from an anniversary from a crown to you know, I just then uh, that's what I kind of wanted to do with this show was to because uh, it, it's it's bewildering and there aren't really great sources to go out there and, and find out more about it. Uh, so I was just hoping that, that you know, we're going to get a lot of people talking about the different models and that'll sort of help us
3: understand what the, the Graphlex universe is. Well, Graham would be the the expert on that. But, you know, just to give you a, just real quick. What I distilled down to the bottom of the line was that a speed graphic camera will have a shutter, a focal plane shutter in the body. A crown graphic will not have a focal plane shutter in the body. And after you get past that, there are three different, at least three different sizes, two by three, three by four, four by five. And if I'm not completely mistaken, there's a five by seven somewhere out there, though you don't see very many of them. Is that is that oversimplified, Graham?
5: No, and it's... It's really hard from our perspective in like current day, like twenty twenty three. Looking back at this is fifty years worth of manufacturing history that's being condensed down. You're looking at crown versus speed versus century, and and it gets really confusing to look at all from the current day perspective. But you you're you're right on the money. There they made two by three through five by seven, and in crown and speed graphic uh, crown graphics weren't made until the pacemaker came out. So there is no anniversary crown graphics. There's just anniversary speed graphics because back then you had the cycle graphic and other like studio cameras that kind of took over that, that crown graphic, no, no focal plane shutter business, but everything with speed in the name before 1945 meant focal plane shutter. Um, and a lot of that comes with, cause you also have like, there's the Kodak speed. Which is effectively a a, like a fulmer and swing focal plane shutter inside of a Kodak camera, but you're you're definitely not oversimplifying it by saying that it's 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 confusing mess when you look at it from from today's perspective.
4: Graham, just um, just as uh, you've you've jumped in here, uh, maybe give us a bit of a background of yourself, and because uh, obviously your your Got the name graphlex parts and be interesting to understand where that comes from your your knowledge around graphlex your background in graphlex to sort of ease us into the topic
5: oh certainly certainly so i started up um graphlex parts is more the name of just kind of a general project more than just a trade name i I think of it more of a project um and the idea is to not sell old graphlex parts like i've got i've got a whole pallet full of camera junk behind me um, that is just old, like I've got boxes and boxes of speed graphic parts, but what I like to do is I machine new parts or, and usually I like to do metal. So I'm not a 3d printer. Um, I've got a laser and, and CNC in my shop too, but I've got a lathe and a mill. And so I'll make small parts and, and usually things that you can't get for speed graphics. I started up my, my whole thing about five and a half years ago, I think now, um, I've been into film since I was about, uh, 13 years old and I'm, I'm, I just turned 30 last week. Otherwise, I've been fully employed for a good five years now doing just Graflex repair. Um, I'll do simple CLAs. Like, I'll, I work on speed graphics um, a lot, a lot of speed graphics, uh, just tune-ups and things like that. But I also do really extensive work. Like, I can replace focal plane and shutter curtains. I do the whole, whole nine yards. I can make the whole big shutter curtains with all the ribs and everything like that. Um, but what I really like to do in my shop is specialize on, like, little tiny things where they're really critical where you can go out and buy another speed graphic for two two three hundred dollars, you know, if you if you've got a broken curtain. But the cameras I like to work on are you can't get new parts for or you can't you can't even, you know, it's like five by sevens and things like that where there were only very few of them. So that's kind of where I've got a lot of my my knowledge i'm also involved in a few different um facebook groups like the graphics camera group that we've got um and there's a bunch of history and research that comes with just being involved in the work like i've been for years so so things like like to me it seems simple to look at speed crown graphics and, and that whole lineage and it, it seems just apparent to me but i I'm well aware of how confusing it is to, to the average person just jumping in. So
4: I, I can understand that because uh, I um, I posted a picture the other day of, uh, and it did have a Graphlex in there and someone's come back and said, oh, that's a PH47E. And I've gone, okay, how did you tell that just from the front? And obviously there's all these tell signs there. So, so you know, there's obviously a lineage and a background on where these cameras started and how they progressed. So um it might be worth diving into that a little bit in in terms of you know graphlex where did they come from how did they start and and what what was the first initial models which i imagine is the the look down slrs
5: as far as graphlex goes it's it's interesting because it's easier to look at a speed and crown graphic when you know more about where it all came from to start with and so the company started out in about 1890 1892 ish um william f fulmer um I'm not. I don't know Schwing's first name off offhand. I've I've been doing a different YouTube video today. That's a whole other work of history. Um, but they started out in about 1892, and they were making initially uh, gas lanterns, like lamps and certain things, and also bicycles. So think uh, stamping, manufacturing tubes, certain like production, manufacturer or uh, like like large scale production. The you know industrialization late 1800s and they immediately started transition they were getting enough orders for and requests for cameras uh because they were it was a big thing back in the 1890s to have a bicycle and go out and bicycle with a camera at the same time so graphlex's first camera or at this point fulmer and schwing manufacturing company uh their first camera was the Cyclographic, and it was meant to just attach to a camera or to a bicycle uh and it you can find some great photos where it actually had a whole bag that was meant to go on bicycle handlebars and it's super cute. But from that, they then immediately started extending themselves into the professional market because you had all of the big wooden studio cameras um, and that whole market sort existed. But around the same time, you have this, this whole booming of manufacturing going on in the European market and also in the Rochester area where Fulmer and Schwing were originally located. And it's, it's like 1892 to 1898, you have a bunch of different focal plane shutter designs come up at like one time. Everyone's got the next best idea. Everyone's trying to get a patent that's a little bit best up on this leg. It's a different in this way. It's different in that way. And then finally in 1898, we see the first single lens reflex in the US, United States get built. And it's by, I, I can't remember the name offhand. Um, there's a graphics Historical Quarterly uh, uh Gosh, I can't remember the name. But if you also, along with Graphlex.org, look up the Graphlex Historic Quarterly, which is like a small publication that uh, a man by the name of Ken Mackelf made, and it's amazing, amazing resource that will stand to the test of time. And he's documented this. And so the first real single lens reflex was made by a guy who was just really into bird photography. And bird photography back then, you wanted to be able to see the image that you're going to take right away. You want to be able to compose and then collapse that mirror and be able to take the photo right away. And so he stole, well, collected some ideas from friends that he had in the the industry and made effectively the first single lens reflex camera. Well, this is 1898 or so, and uh, William Fulmer sees this and he's like, I need to have that camera. I need, this is the next big wave of manufacturing. And they had also been creating, at that point, they had already created the graphic camera line, which were like more field cameras, but the graphic camera series was now the name that they were branding things under. And so in 1902, uh, Fulmer patents his patent for a single lens reflex camera, the mirror mechanism, everything goes above and beyond trying to write this patent out to cover everything. And he deems it the Graphlex, the graphic reflex camera, or the graphic graphic automatic reflex. Well, and then later on, a few years later, you have the autographlex, which is the automatic graphlex because they decided to change their shutter. I believe William Fulmer stole his first shutter patent and then quickly changed it by 1905. (laughs) And so then that's the shutter that you have. That's the shutter that lived all the way up until the, the speed graphic, until, well, they came out with the super speed graphic and killed the whole focal plane shutter line. But you have this same shutter, which is the long roll focal plane, where you've got multiple different apertures cut in a big long roll of fabric, and you wind it up to a certain point, you hit a release, and it drops that aperture in front of the the film and that's how you, you make your exposure um and they kept that same shutter design tweaked it a little bit for some different designs but kept that all the way through the speed graphics and through the super d and and all of those cameras up until the 60s and so we see this pairing where the crown graphic didn't need to exist before the pacemaker series existed because before then you're only using a focal plane shutter and with with the cycle graphics you would put on the shutter like you could use it as an accessory and so they they actually made um single focal plane shutters which um i know this is audio but i'm i'm holding up now on camera an 8x10 uh Graphlex focal plane shutter which is an enormous thing that i can stick my entire head through if i want to um
4: and, and for and so, here, uh, graham ju- actually just did <laughs> <laughs>
5: yes um and so so th- these these shutters were an accessory for a bunch of years and it it, it took a good while before the market was right, and and William Fulmer at this point after the 20s became Graflex. Um, they adopted their their pet name for their first camera as their because that became their brand. You know that was their their big trade name after uh, the 1910s was Graflex, and so they assumed that. And then once they find the market started to shift because this is a whole big thing too. You say two by three, three by four, all these different formats. It also seems really irrelevant today because you're like, well, two by three is like medium format, but four by five is large format. But why is there three by four? And and it's all of these small little ebbs and flows to a market that existed, where three by four was kind of like the the redheaded stepchild, where it was kind of came into popularity a few times and then kept falling out of popularity. Um,
4: it's a bit like six twenty in medium format. It sort of came in and but didn't yeah. really, yeah.
5: And. It, it had a use and a reason and then so effectively three by four if it just just to put it out there three by four speed graphics and crown graphics are the most rare of all of the speed and crown graphics um because three by four was just at a point before world war ii where it was starting to fall out of favor and graphics didn't really want to make any more cameras for it so after world war ii and they start to introduce the pacemaker series they actually for for about a year did not want to release a three by four pacemaker but the market demanded it. And they came out with this quasi-GraphLock 3x4 that I've never seen one in person. I believe they all went back to the factory to get refitted within six months um, because they had felt that would wear out immediately. Because um, it was instead of GraphLock where you're sliding in this film holder, it was their earlier system, but without this, this retaining ridge. So you're sliding against adhesive felt and it just... it. Wasn't a long, long lasted product, I think they only made maybe 500 to 1000 units doing that and then they all got immediately replaced and then they came back out made three by four after the war for a little bit and it died just like that again. And so most of what you see today are either two by three, like the, the baby speed graphics. Um, or the the crown graphic and I guess just on top of this too, the century graphic is another later cousin to this. Um, Graphlex really had this thing. Well, and William Fulmer had had this uh sort of obsession with manufacturing efficiency. Um he he's patented a lot of bizarre things like egg cartons and uh essentially like a lunchbox and some other really, really weird things, but they all revolve around like dyes and stampings and and different processes like that. And you you see that happen with all the older stuff or with with the like the the later things um well, on,
3: on three by four though you know it, it could also have been that there was some resistance from kodak and the film manufacturers because that wasn't a that wasn't a high selling uh size of film for them and for them to to have to continue to uh to market it it was to their advantage for it to go down to to four, just to go up to four by five and keep it there and on the two by three then you could also get a rollback oh so, yeah use 620 or 120 film and the backs, so it simplified it, it was a it was a it was better for everybody to to drop the three by four um the three what you were saying earlier about the backs on three by four were they they weren't all spring backs were not they later on they were, there was a graph lock back in the three by four
5: there is so so what you get is i guess traditionally also because for for people who aren't super aware of of the graphlex system you've got three main back styles the the first one is just called graphlex which it's it's or people call it also slotted style and there's this big metal ridge that the film holder has like a slot for that it goes over and very soon after that the graphlex pioneered uh springback or effectively universal format which are are the film holders that just shove into place underneath a spring holder and so Graphflex released a springback version very early with this and then later on as the markets changed and but as they got to the pacemaker series which is uh like 1950s um we they changed out to doing a a kind of doubling up of the same of, of the graph flex slotted version and the graph lock spring back because spring backs can't accommodate a lot of stuff. Especially like the Lomo graph locks, those in stock specs that people are into right now, um, those can't fit under a normal graph lock spring back. Uh, it it raises it too much. You'll break the springs on the camera doing that. So when you're using one of those, you use it on a graph lock, hence Lomo graph lock, and you take the spring viewing attachment off the back of the camera and put in the actual Lomo graph lock back. They they really didn't make it easy at all because you have. The Graflex, Graflex back, the Graflex spring back, the Graflex, Graflex, Graphlock back. Like they, they, you. Well, then you have the Graflex shutter, the graphic cameras. You know, they, they obsessed so much about the graphic name that it, it just does not make things easy today.
6: <laughs> there's the graph larger. There's the
5: <laughs> <laughs> right
6: graphic spot. I think for the yeah that people think the Mamiya RB67 was like so innovative, but Graflex had. Uh, reflex mirror, um uh rotating back so you didn't have to tilt the whole camera to do to do verticals. Um they had uh, when you open the viewing hood, it would open uh, a cover in front of the lens, which also became a lens hood. Like it was they had everything like uh 40, 50 years before Mamiya.
4: <laughs> in fact, isn't the uh B67 back? based on the Graphlocks system? It,
6: yeah, I believe it is almost identical to it a 2x3 GraphLock. Uh, people tell me there can be some issue of a certain pin. Uh, I don't have one myself, so I don't know. But
5: Well, intolerance has changed a little bit too. Once you get outside of GraphLock's actual manufacturing line themselves and that comes into all film holders too i guess as a warning to to any newbies out there is that not all four by five film holders are built alike um wooden ones and metal ones can have a little variation and wooden ones can wear down and get out of out of calibration um i think it's interesting too because you have you have like though uh the cameras with the automatic lens shades and then you have a few other ones like um lesser known single lens reflex cameras like the the compact graphlex or like the auto graphics. I think someone I saw someone on video had a one of the I think a three A or a one a autographic. Um and those cameras I, I my personal favorite Graphlex camera is a three by five compact Graphlex, but it is also one of the most obsolete and unserviceable Graphlex that's out there because they decided to make a consumer version that you're going to go out, you're going to take because uh So the compact graphics comes in three by five, like postcard format. And the idea was that you're going to go out and do like landscape photography and, and go take beautiful panoramas. And so they made it a very consumer hiking camera, not a professional servicing camera. And so they covered everything with leather. So if you actually want to get inside of one to do any meaningful work, uh, you need to strip off a ton of leather, which I'll also warn people, don't go try and do curtain replacements on cameras unless you you really gotta. A, uh, I don't know. It's kind of masochism to try and make curtains. So, <laughs> but.
1: Well, let me let, let, I, with with all of this history of Graflex uh, and and the question of, of which ones are, are usable or which ones are not. Eric, you have the full Schwing bicycle camera, right?
7: I do have. I do have and have used the the bicycle camera quite a bit. What bike did you put it on? <laughs> well, the, uh, the only bike I've had has been stolen. So, oh no, no. Yeah. It was a bummer. No. Um, yeah, no bike with it. That was my plan actually though. That was, I was going to, I got a bike. I got the camera and I got a bike and I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to go out and, and ride with this camera. Cause it's, it's not small, but it's, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's fine. Yeah. And then the bike was stolen and it never happened. And I got cranky and I haven't used the camera since. Oh no. Does it work? Yeah. Ah, yeah. It has yeah. A, a big, a big, like a huge honking uh, uh, focal plane shutter on the
8: back of it. It's what size cool. format is it, if I can ask? 4 by 5 4 by 5 okay. I see, on my bike trips, I've actually used one of the aforementioned 3 by 4s Oh. Yeah. So I've done 1,200 miles from San Francisco to Tucson with a 3 by 4
7: Oh, cool. Wow, what a... Straight range, for punishment is also yeah what that, is <laughs> that
1: is great. <laughs> and then, uh, fam, you were holding up one of the, the view reflex cameras, right?
0: Auto graphic five by seven SLR. That's, this big baby right here, that's the size of my chest, basically. Yeah, oh, hold on, let, let me stand up just for I have a little size <laughs> just gauge how big this thing Whoa.
3: is. Whoa, yeah, that's the, the
0: uh, basically the height of my entire chest that's amazing
3: yes
4: it's a Graphlex. so what you see is what's the viewfinder like is it bright is it can you get a really good good view through it well I have a
0: f3.5 lens on it right now so I've actually shot this in very dark and cramped concert arenas and venues so I I mean I see fine right now wide open at f3.5 it's suitable in almost any occasion it's amazing
8: I have to ask that. And then I also have, I saw one A, which I'm super curious about. Sorry, camera nerd here. But for the five by seven shooting concert photography, like, did you have a media pass? Or did you just sort of like traipse through security with this like camera, literally the size of your torso Like, Oh, don't mind me you have to go into the rock show with this ginormous box of film. Uh, you know, yeah. It was for an
0: artist named Sudan Archives, and she was actually on Jimmy Fallon's show, um, I believe last month. And it was through a mutual friend who helped me get the media pass in order to bring this thing in into the concert, and I was using this not only in the backstage, but I was also using it while it in the crowd itself. So you can imagine, like just being bashed around by the audience left and right while holding this thing, taking photos. Did you just take like HP five and push it to, like thirty two
8: hundred or something?
0: Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. So I so I use a four hundred speed Foma pan. 400 yeah. and then I pushed it 30 uh 30 so I meter everything at 3200 and then mm-hmm. I pushed it in I believe I use um, I use um Ilford's uh I don't know how to pronounce it like microfine or mi- microfen I think it's microfen microfin. tomato tomato <laughs> all right well so that's what I used to push the film and I mean photos came out and i actually made a reel on instagram uh, for it uh i do plan to post the the series of photos next week so on my instagram i'm gonna actually post the individual photos themselves so everyone can start viewing them but in terms of um so someone made a comment it was like oh th- did i just carry this in and just let me in uh so funny story there was a private event at sammy's camera in Hollywood. And I was holding one of my smaller Graphlexes, not this big one, but I had a smaller one. And I was doing street photography and I didn't, and there was this guy I was talking to on the sidewalk and he was like, oh yeah, come over. We have a party or something. So I go to Sammy's camera and they were like checking everyone's tickets and IDs and stuff. I don't know what was going on. I guess they thought I was part of staff or something. So with the with that camera, it was a three by four series D. I just waltz in. Without being, in, without being asked or carded or anything. And it turned out to be a event with the Cinematographer Society. <laughs> uh-huh. And there was like directors from Hollywood and cinematographers. And one of them was a uh, named Dean Cundy, which is cinematographer for a lot of our favorite movies back in the 1980s. And he worked with Steven Spielberg. And yes, uh, I was talking to him and I was like, can I, take a portrait of you with this camera. And he's like, hell yes, I want a portrait with that camera. So I love having that, I love having a graphics just because like it's so inviting to people. Not only it's something that's so different, like who's this person using this camera from like the 1920s, but today? And I don't know, it just makes everyone excited to get a photo from it. And I haven't received a single no from anyone I've taken a photo of. Uh I actually met um a a Bill on the bottom. he just waved his hand. I actually met him in uh Seattle and I took I'd taken a great portrait with the same, with this big giant camera. So I've been traveling around with this thing. I've been meeting people, I've been asking strangers for portraits. And yeah, it's it's quite a journey with this thing.
3: Um it's a passport. I mean, you walk in anywhere with that camera. And they, they know that either you are very serious or you're crazy. So you can basically go anywhere you want to go and and do what you want to do with it.
6: We we would be remiss if we didn't mention uh, a street photographer who does portraits in New York City, Luis Mendez, who uses a, a pacemaker with uh, two or three flash heads and instant film, I believe. And yeah. you have to barter with them as to the cost of your portrait. Uh, I haven't been, but apparently, if you go to B in downtown Manhattan, he's often outside there, and you can you can get
4: a portrait done. Yeah, I've even heard of him from down here in Sydney. Actually, that um, he's, he's quite famous in that respect. Um, someone did a uh, a series on him uh, for at one point, uh, a series of pictures of him, and apparently that's quite rare. But uh, that that must be quite amazing. Yeah, you know, shooting street. Photography with uh, with a camera like that and and instant film that that's that's pretty um yeah that must be a pretty locked in uh, process
1: yeah so oh, Graham of these pre the the, the pre speed graphics these, these the 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 view cameras the SLR cameras are they viable to keep up and running in this day and age I mean I know this is your business is to make parts for these things uh, but are they sort of a reliable investment if one was uh you know if one has the opportunity to pick one up uh or is it the case with as i find with you know a lot of cameras even from the 50s uh that just deteriorated and just are not uh really usable as cameras anymore
5: That's excellent. Um so the first thing i, I i'd like to say is that i don't think these cameras should necessarily, necessarily be considered an investment because there's so much that can happen with the market. They're not like they're going to accrue value or keep value like gold the, the market could completely tanked. The, the market had tanked totally in the 1980s, 1990s. There's a, a good few people around. Like you got uh Jeffrey, Jeffrey Berliner from the, the Fadumber Institute who did a lot of his collecting back in the 1980s and 1990s when these cameras were worth absolutely nothing. No one wanted any part of them. Digital was on the rise formats went to 35 millimeter and large format you didn't care about unless you're a commercial photographer but as far as the viability of them today I think generally what I'll say is if you have a broken camera just buy a camera that works and that reliably works or wait for don't just gamble money away on a $150 thing on eBay that might work or it might come come functioning somehow wait for something that's got a functioning focal plane shutter on it something that you that's tested you know it's gonna work, because as you keep exercising something like that, and I think people in like the um, I, I know the the shoe collecting industry, like like people who collect Nikes um, for their hobby, have have realized this that you can't just leave rubber to sit for 20 years without being touched. These things need to go through work and elasticity. Like otherwise their structure just completely breaks down. So people have pairs of shoes that are 30 some years old that have rubber. That is great because they've been wearing the shoes every few months for a bunch of years. And there's people who have left these shoes on, on a shelf for 25 years and you just touch the rubber and it falls apart. And it's the same thing with these graph flex shutters because they're made from it's it, Started out being a silk-based fabric that was rubberized on one side and then it became fully impregnated, rubberized on both sides in the 1950s. But it's it's all it's a rubberized fabric, and the rubber does break down, it will decompose. And there are people you'll you'll hear people will have dry shutter curtains that are like wrinkly, crinkly, look like an absolute mess. And people are like just just soften it, just spray it with some lemon pledge, spray it with something, it'll it'll soften it. And it does that that does work. Um, And I believe the the active ingredient is an emulsified silicon agent uh, that works itself back into the rubber and softens it. But what you get with when you try and soften a dead curtain is you open up millions and millions of pinholes throughout the whole curtain. You stretch open all of these cracks because the rubber was decomposing and so is the fabric of the curtain. So the one thing to stress through all of that is buy a camera that works Otherwise, you're going to buy four that don't work before you get to one that maybe works, which is usually how it goes. People are like, "I'll just gamble," and then you've got six speed graphics, and one of them has a good shutter in it, and then you've got five parts cameras sitting around that aren't doing anything. Um, as far would, as that, would you goes, say the
6: bellows are, I the, the ones I've had, I've never had problems with the bellows as opposed to a lot of European folders where the bellows really, like Agfa folders, the bellows just fall apart.
5: That comes down to some really key manufacturing decisions that Graflex decided to make early on. And part of it's the leather outer. Um, When you get to certain there's a lot of funky synthetics and and different rubbers that the European market tried to, to use. And I don't, I don't know if that's totally just how manufacturing trends work. You also have world war one, world war two that comes over the top of things in, in Europe that we don't think about in, in the American market here with Graflex. It's like, well, the war happened and sales skyrocketed. It's like, okay, well, the war happened for mentor cameras and mentor nearly shut down for like 10 years. I think what we, we, we need to look at is some ca- like more recent cameras, like the pacemakers, the newer the camera that you're going to buy, the more reliable it's going to be. Um, and that comes with some of the decisions that Graflex decided to make along the with- way they're older curtains. If you go back to actually the eight x 10 shutter that I, I was holding up before and sticking my head through the original curtain that came on, it was a very, very old, like circa 1908 version of shutter fabric. It was thicker than their actual standard that they moved to. It had some other decisions that went into what they were doing when they manufactured it and it it aged terribly. But as they started to move on, um, there was a period like during the, I think the late 1920s, 1930s where, so I, This will be for the people who really know Graphlex. Series Bs, a 4x5 Series B notoriously has a really bad viewing hood on it. It's a a very treated lacquered leather, and it's like plastic. It is absolutely like plastic. And once they start to dry out, they just tear. And so you'll go to just gently collapse the hood on the camera, and you'll just punch your fingers right through the sides of it. Um, Whereas on the Series D, they chose a little bit different combination of materials. A little bit more some of them are, are vinyls but they just made different conscious decisions about what they were doing at a certain point and i think that's also why graphlex ended up going into combat both in world war one and world war ii and then through the korean conflict and and beyond that is you had these manufacturing consistencies that the u.s government was looking for in a product for themselves you know i graphlex went through far less Work to make their cameras combat ready than a lot of firearms manufacturers in the day made to get their guns purchased by the U.S. government. So, <laughs> I don't yeah. know.
6: I just wanted to throw it out there that we've talked about the reflex graf- Graflex cameras and the graphics, the press cameras. Uh, Graphlex also made another kind of camera, which was a view camera. Very early monorail. I thought it was maybe the first monorail. But somebody on the graphlex.org site corrected me. But they made a a series of cameras called the Graphic View. Uh, This is a Graphic View 2. Has uh, movements that tilt from the center, which is considered somewhat superior. But this is an excellent camera that's perfectly usable today. It's got pretty much all the movements you want. It's very sturdy. And and it looks nice. It's got the nice snappy red bellows and the sort of Art Deco sort of touches in the aluminum. Um, I love it. So uh, Graflex had their hand in everything
3: large format. Mario and Joanne Julianne is a, a Graflex, Graflex shooter.
2: Yeah, a baby shooter, <laughs> <laughs> meaning I'm not very good.
3: <laughs> Are you shooting the two by threes or?
2: Not, well, I have two two by threes, but I like the four by fives better.
3: Are you shooting sheet film on the four by fives or are you using roll film?
2: Um, paper.
3: Oh, you're doing paper. Okay, cool. Very cool.
9: Yeah, she cuts her own paper um, just about every morning. She uh, does a couple of shots before anybody gets up, and then she develops them. And uh, a lot of times, her negatives are so good that we don't even invert them because they look good as, as negatives.
2: Saying so good is very subjective.
3: <laughs> uh-huh. So are you? Are you, you? So you're making paper negatives. Are you then do you contact print them to make yourself a a positive from them? Or are you just scanning them and, re- and inverting them?
2: I'm not very good at contact printing. I've done it a few times. So I I've figured out what I like as a negative and I shoot for the negative. So they're kind of like a Polaroid. Like I like what they come out as. I do scan and invert them too, but I just like them straight out of the camera.
3: The hardest part to do that today is the fact that it's really hard to find a single weight paper that isn't back printed. So you you get the paper and it's got, you know, whoever the manufacturer was printed on the back side of it. So you can't really uh, do a contact print to make yourself a a negative from it.
2: I have pretty old paper too. I've I've only been taking pictures for about a year, and I got my cameras were they're pretty old for forty bucks. And it works. The focal plane shutter doesn't, but this one Okay, doesn't. so you're using
3: the leaf shutter. You're using the leaf shutter for your Yeah, experience.
2: yeah. And um, the paper that I have is also pretty old, so it doesn't have any words on the back. It's all free. So someday I'll have to buy stuff <laughs> when I run out.
4: So, so what particular model is that one?
2: I don't know. It's a pre-anniversary That's all
4: i figured out. Yeah, okay, so that's that's a model.
5: Pre-anniversary
3: is is actually a model.
2: Well, you're all saying things like A's and B's and D's, and I'm (laughs) like, I don't know what that means.
5: (laughs) Well, and then to complicate things further, there's also the, they're called top handle speed graphics, which are the pre-anniversary before the pre-anniversary was the pre-anniversary. The top (laughs) handle had a handle on top instead of on Uh the side. And then, so yours looks like it would be mid-transition from top handle to side handle. So there's like a brief year where they had that that cool collapsing viewfinder that's on top of that um is super deep. Yeah.
2: I have another one, too. I have a newer one, but her eye broke, so she can't take pictures right now. This is Violet, and this one is Hazel.
3: <laughs> Hazel and Violet. Okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice.
9: Fantastic. Yeah, it's a lot of fun seeing her. Uh, she started basically with medium format and went right to uh, to large format. And now um, she's really itching to go to eight by 10. <laughs> so we'll see.
2: They look like kind of like that. I just I like the paper and you don't have to be in the dark to develop it. And I don't like being in the dark. So I try to do only either type film or paper. So I don't have to be in the dark.
6: You can also use uh, if uh, there's this accessory, the Lomo graph lock back which allows you to use modern instant film, uh, Fuji Instax wide. It's not quite four by five. It's more like uh, two and a half by four and a half-ish. But it's nice, and it allows you to shoot color relatively inexpensively and experiment.
10: Is the Lomo Graph Lock basically an update of the old Polaroid four by five? Uh, insert that you would use you would you would use it in any four by five camera and you would insert uh, a sheet of polaroid film is it
5: i'd like to interject uh, a little bit quick just uh, just on backing on this really quick that i i think there is a, a bit of, of principal difference when you go from a four by five polaroid holder to the lomo graph lock because you have that that flange distance difference that they created by having to have those rollers in the lomo graph lock um I, I it's we we forget it now, but there's a lot of a lot of professionals were using for uh, Polaroid film as proofing for actual imagery because the that whole exposure latitude is so tight and it's so high contrast, you know. Like so I think we lost it a little bit that people aren't using it as a proof anymore, but I I think it's better than ever that we have a Lomograph again. <laughs> well, and like like Luis Mendez, you can give out a print and retain your negative and then yeah, just clear yeah. your negative. You still have the image. You gave someone a gift that they're gonna keep for the rest of your
4: life. I think we're just making people um, very sad that that's not available anymore. <laughs> <for sure. laughs> we can reminisce.
1: <laughs> well, if I can put the Lomo graphic back in the drawer for a bit and try to get back onto our cameras. Continuing on with our education about graph So we've made, we've made it to the press camera. Uh, we have the, the speed and then we have the crown. And then the difference being that the speed has the focal plane shutter and the crown does not. Are there tips that you have for people using a speed to be able to adapt, uh, let's say, projector lenses or old brass barrel lenses? I mean, what are the relative advantages of, of if you're looking to acquire a press camera of going for one over the other?
5: Yeah, that's that's a big thing for for beginners, too, because when you especially when you get your first large format camera, you kind of want something that's going to hopefully do the whole deal that you want to do. And people are looking at a crown graphic a lot and they, they don't realize that a lot of lenses you're going to want to shoot are projection lenses, you know, lenses that were not meant to take photos. They were meant to project photos. So you don't have an adjustable aperture or iris or any of that. You're just it's a barrel lens. There's no shutter. You can't put it in a leaf shutter because it's probably too big for a leaf shutter, especially for the the ones that you usually see on like a crown. Graphic. these like lenses like Buell's or uh the heightos mats and and all these these funky big lenses they're part of why you want to shoot them is because they're really fast too they're like f 2.5 or f 2.8 for a pretty long lens and on 4x5 film that adds up the the, the focal uh equivalent becomes kind of crazy and they're really really shallow depth of field lenses the big thing is i'd say go for 4x5 if you might want to shoot 120 or smaller format films, yeah, you might want to try and get a two by three or three by four crowner speed, but save your money for a four by five. And I'd honestly say also just save your money for a pacemaker version. What I like to recommend for the best beginner speed graphic is the iteration of pacemaker speed graphic before they went to that plastic top uh, rangefinder. The side mounted rangefinders that Calart made can be calibrated calibrated way beyond what factory spec was even meant to do. Like you can get them to be very, very fine focused. So if you're going to shoot say like an Aero Ectar, like a Kodak's aerial lens that are like prolific for their the cameras that people were shooting in, in like be, like in, in the bombers and stuff in World War II. Um, so it's those big lenses though, and, and shallow depths of field, like you really need a rangefinder that's going to be reliable. And so the color is something that you can focus to that point those the, the top mounted plastic range finders that you see they deal with an interchangeable range finder cam system so there's this little piece of metal that you can change out and each piece of metal is for either a like 127 millimeter lens or 150 millimeter lens etc cetera, etc cetera. and to change your focus you would change that instead of in the cal arts it is a very manual process you can only have one lens calibrated at a time unless you're going to go sit and spend a couple hours calibrating another lens but you can get that lens that you're gonna have dead on calibrated. So you can have your your big beautiful portrait lens that you wanna get those those sharp, sharp photos from that you can be on the go with handheld. But you can also have your whole other kit of lenses that you can just use on a tripod. You know, you don't need to be hand holding your camera all the time, especially a speed graphic or a crown graphic. Um, those are kind of inherently meant to be on a tripod. Um, People also forget that they're like, well, I wish the speed graphic had portrait mode. And it's like, it's got a tripod socket on the left side. So you can flip the whole camera 90 degrees onto its side and take portrait photos. You don't need to have a rotating back on a speed graphic. Beyond that, there's not really much to go on. It's easier to make um, lens boards for the pre-anniversary and anniversary speed graphics because they're just a flat chunk of plywood effectively. When you get to the pacemakers, they're like the stamped sheet of metal and they're a little bit harder to work with. And also sometimes if you're trying to jam a really big lens inside of your front standard, you might need to uh, get out a hand file and start whittling away at the front standard. Um, I personally don't judge people for doing that to cameras. I'm not going to judge a camera that comes on my bench and it's had the, the inner diameter of, of the front standard's been whittled out so they can cram a big Pentac or some other <laughs> enormous lens that was never meant to be on speed graphic on a speed graphic.
6: It's also perhaps worth mentioning that if people get pacemaker lens boards for their lenses they can all if they should later get either a graphic view like i have or a or a speed graphic um or an anniversary graphic that that takes they you can adapt the pacemaker boards onto the anniversary boards but you can't go the other way so uh it's good to invest in pacemaker boards they're also harder to make because they have a rolled lip Yep. And anniversary boards are cheap and cheerful and you, you can make them and and the adapters are not that expensive. When I bought the graphic view, the guy threw in three adapters. So, uh, uh, you know, it was no problem.
5: Yeah. And, and the, oh, uh, just one quick second is the other thing that you're going to deal with trying to put lenses on a lens board is you need a flange and there's, there's people who can make threaded flanges. You've got SK Grimes, you have REF camera, um, I don't really like to make flanges. It's not really what I'm set up for in my shop, but there's a lot of people that make flanges. And that's that's the other thing you're going to need is you got a board, you need something to actually hold the lens to screw the lens onto. Also, 3D printing is a thing, and there are groups that are really into this right now. So,
3: <laughs> Well, you really only need a flange for for a an adapted lens or a very heavy barrel-type lens. Yeah. You know, your little, your little lens is 127s and the 135s or the 90s. All you really need for that is a jam nut that came with the lens, hopefully. And even if you don't have one, usually an enlarging lens will jam nuttle fit do the same thing.
5: Or if you really want to be cheap, I've seen enough people make uh, lens boards out of cardboard or MDF sure. or foam, and you just jam the lens right in there. Maybe yeah. throw the, or even hot glue. You know, hot glue can come off of metal. That's not a thing that I'm going to get mad about either. Is hot glue? <laughs> but if
4: you're not adapting, but if you're not adapting, I mean, it's. I mean, this is a Schneider lens here. That just fits in the hole, doesn't it? You don't actually need to put any f- the flanges or anything.
3: Well, you need a you need a, a retaining ring on the back of
5: it,
4: which it has. Yeah,
3: yeah, to hold it in place. Yep, I mean, yeah. that comes with. It.
5: At that point, you just need a hole in the board. So, yep.
3: and, and you have co- the Copal or Comper shutters are different. Copal ones, a uh, couple zero, one, two. Then you get into the Acme shutters and the ILEC shutters, and they're they're all different. Sizes. I would say though, if you if you do lock into finding a, an Aero Ectar, they're a 178 millimeter f 2.5. They are a massive, massive piece of glass and metal, and there are some aftermarket. Uh, some people have started making lens boards that do fit right directly into the Speed Graphics and the Graflex cameras. I yep. just, I've I've been lucky. The last two or three of them I've had actually came with those boards. So it, it made them very easy for someone to mount them into the into the camera itself.
5: Uh Joe Oman, who I, I actually recommended before for being a resource of a website, he JoLo is his his branding yeah. for making Jolo, boards. the la- the last yep. two I held were They're very
3: They're great. great. Yeah. I
5: They're- I don't know how active his manufacturing is these days. Um I I he might be out of stock. I think he's concurrently out of stock sometimes. Um also another great resource that we have right now is a lot of the eBay sellers who make or sell lens boards for graphics cameras, like like speeds or whatever they offer just cutting a hole for free so it's like you don't need to buy just a blank lens board and then figure out how you're going to cut a hole exactly center to the exact diameter you need you can just tell someone on ebay like what diameter you need there's also um uh ross burley with uh burley camera company also does like wooden boards and he's totally doing custom stuff he does probably what i would consider the closest to factory version of uh pre-anniversary speaker graphic boards. Um, but there's tons of resources out there. So it's, it's pretty plug and play when you get into it. You just need to know what you're looking for and what diameter. I would recommend buying a digital calipers so you can measure everything pretty well.
8: <laughs> I was gonna say back to um, real quick projector lenses is something to note in terms of um, getting the cover as big of a film size as possible. Is they're made to have a really, like you look at a projector lens, right? And it, it might be this long. And the rear element is way the hell up here, right? Because it's made to project something forward, not to bring something back and expand it. So if you get a really pretty like projector lens, a lot of them are made for 35 millimeter film. And it's like they don't throw a very big image circle. You can cut off a pretty sizable chunk of that back barrel and it allows the the image circle to expand a lot more to cover a much bigger circle of confusion, right? Like the... um, Uh, The lights medium format projector lens covers a three by four pretty well. I have one without trimming it down, but that's because it's made for medium format slides, and so it's pretty, pretty damn big. I won't swear. Um, But also, a lot of projector lenses—they don't have a very big barrel. I actually have a handmade lens here, so you can see it. So there's one company. I posted a link in the chat that on eBay sells M42 apertures. So. One of the biggest problems with projector lenses is they're razor thin, right? Like if you miss focus, you've got their nose and no eye. And it's just like your portrait is garbage, right? But you can get an M42 base aperture, which depending on how you want to do it, with the lights, I use electrical tape because I am just a kludgy, kludgy kind of guy. And it allows me to stop it down just a little bit to get enough depth of field to get like nose to ear. And it takes beautiful portraits, and it's probably like an F56 at that point instead of the f 28 Um, so if you're into just a little bit of work, you can do things with projector lenses that you never ever thought you could and make them cover a much, much bigger image circle than than you would think
4: that they would. So so we've talked about projector lenses and adapting lenses and and obviously the the standard lenses that came on these things, but one of the things I find quite interesting when I look into the world of speed graphics because they've got the focal plane shutter is the brass lenses and um they've obviously got a very unique look they're old lenses they're beautiful lenses I mean've got I've got uh, one here that's uh extra rapid Euroscope six and a half by four and three quarters it's it's labeled Baker and Rouse which is an Australian company back in the early 1900s which is one of the reasons I'm so interested in it but I mean it's beautiful. It's one of the things I wanna to adapt to my speed graphic. Um, has anyone here been adapt, you know, using the brass lenses to say, take portraits or, or other things?
7: Yeah, I use the brass lens almost exclusively, um,
0: mostly with a Chamonix, but with the Graflex quite a bit. Um, I have a brass lens on my home portrait five by seven. Unfortunately, after doing the test shoot with it, I realized the rig itself is around 16 pounds total. And I think I threw my back on one motion at one point. So I don't okay. recommend it on the five by seven home portrait for those that want to try.
4: Okay. Because I, I find that, I mean, I find it quite interesting. Are they actually you know, quite hard to get the, the focus range correct? I mean, are they made for different cameras? Is it, is it, or is it just a matter of looking through the ground glass and just getting it right through there?
7: It totally depends on the lens. There's so yeah. many different kinds. Um like especially soft this focus. Is a Petsville and it's really just for portraits. I'm not a portrait photographer. And yet here I go, I have one. And if you're doing anything like a landscape, it's not gonna really work. But I also have an anti planet brass lens, which um is made for but mostly made for landscapes. And it's just gorgeous. It's just it's gorgeous. It's it focuses like any any normal lens really and yes the anti-planet is the best named lens maybe ever i think wonderful low lens and it has an aperture in it which is kind of rare for a black brass lens
8: don't be afraid if you get a a brass lens that has water stops and they don't have any just has the slit in the middle they're easy enough to make yeah they really aren't rocket science to make your own you can get just really thin carbon fiber stock that you can just cut down yourself and drill holes in. You have to black out the back because they're not 100% light proof, but there's just a million different things you can make water stops out of. So don't worry about that at all.
4: Oh, that's good to know, actually, because it it uh, obviously cuts down the price when you're looking for them as well sometimes.
8: No, I was
3: just going to say, you know, it, when you get into the classic lenses for these cameras, the ones that that are, are worth looking for that would have shutters of some kind would be the the gold dagors or the red dot artars and some of those lenses that are they have a very unique look. They're a little bit easier to work with than the the barrel lenses are, uh, just from the standpoint of having shutters and and having uh, apertures built into them. But uh, the German lenses from the from the forties and fifties, a lot of those are really cool lenses.
4: Okay, so with the story of Graphlex, bringing it back into that that story, there we've we've gone through the um, the press cameras. Graphlex continued on, you know, obviously through the 50s and 60s. What What's the story there? Because that was probably the turning point for them, I, I imagine. I don't know that much about them being from Australia, so that, that would be good to hear what sort of started happening there with Graphlex. And um, obviously, they led into, you know, cameras like the one Greg... Um, <laughs> who showed us last week, which is the, the military one, which we'll, we'll come to in a little while.
5: Graflex's history after World War II kind of changes a little bit. You'll also see sometimes people get really specific about what serial number dates they have for cameras. And it's because there does exist a book um, that is the original sales ledger that Graflex or that William Fulmer uh, bought in 1912. He didn't keep track of serial numbers for the first 20 years of the company. And then I got a ledger and barely kept track of anything for the first 20 years. But through the book what we see is that during world war ii mostly consumer orders just altogether stopped and everything was generally like government ordering but these orders got huge and so graphics was like at max capacity for manufacturing and then after world war ii being they got a little bit of a it, it's both ways where you have all these gis coming home who appreciated these cameras that the signal core were using etc cetera, etc cetera. but a lot of these guys also just brought cameras home and like, oh, you're supposed to turn the camera in uh, before you you leave. And it's like, they just smuggled them home. So especially the later on ones, the ones that were actually like done in olive drab green, people would, instead of turning them back in, they just spray paint them green. But that's, that's after World War II. But so you, you had them entertaining government contracts. They got back into doing uh, public market after like 1945. They could, which especially I, I know, I think someone posted in, in the Facebook group that... Um, They have a wartime speed graphic and the wartime speed graphics famously, they did not do any plating or any Chrome or anything on them for the war effort, of course. And they, they blacked out everything on those cameras. And so they came back, they got to start re-nickel plating everything. They came out with the pacemaker series. It's like, this is the new new version of what, of the speed graphic. They thought about trying to make a rotating back on the pacemaker. They realized it wouldn't work and keep the same profile of the cameras they wanted. So they're like, let's just do the pacemaker. It introduced with just a side-mounted rangefinder soon enough they put on a top-mounted rangefinder around the same time you have the last iteration of the slrs that they released which is the super d um, the updated version of the series e single lens reflex where they updated it by having uh, a flash sync a flash sync that doesn't work with strobes it only works with flash bulbs but also an automatic diaphragming uh, lens so when you would release the mirror to release the shutter on on the super d it then will release uh the iris which is under spring load attention so you get like depth of field preview and then you can disengage it to actually take the photo this is like all all before everything that happened with 35 millimeter once we leave that we get into the 1960s and Graflex kind of does a little bit of a shift here the teams that were around for a while kind of start. i mean you got to think there's employees who had been part of graphlex for 30, 40 years at this point. And some of these people need to start retiring. And so things start to change a little bit. And the company eventually, I think just also falling out of favor for smaller formats in the 1960s, the company shifts hands to uh GE and GE buys them. And under GE, they released the Graphlex XL, which is like the, the MimiA press version of Graflex that you'll see. Um, where it's it's sort of that that big ugly rangefinder thing. The Graphlex XL existed for a little while. It They spent a ton of work. It was kind of like their brainchild again. The the whole design team that was behind it cared a lot about making the Graphlex XL. And they put in like every last thing that they could. And that was kind of the last bump for the company. It came out, it effectively flopped because it didn't have that big of a market at that time. I mean, we still have this, this, we're still trending away from large format as far as a professional commercial, like, or, or as far as more pictorial journalistic means which that was the idea of a rangefinder is you're going to be out shooting you know you're going to be on on location and not in a studio and so it just didn't fit right and so eventually Graflex sold off to Singer and then Singer in this last like four or five years that they owned it uh, Graflex went belly up in about 1972-1973 when they sold to Toyo and Toyo purchased the uh, patent and design rights, and effect, and not just the patent rights, but the actual like manufacturing designs and plans for the PaceMaker Speed Graphic and the or and the Supers and all that that they were releasing. And so you will find after the Super Speed Graphic era, well, oh, gosh, at the same time with the XL, you have the Super Speed Graphic, which came out, which was just also a lot of work for a lot of nothing. And then Toyo started producing Super Speed Graphics. Under Toyo's name and also to clear up confusion, the super speed graphic is not a speed graphic it's effectively a crowd graphic with a rotating back. And a fast leaf shutter that they called the speed 1000 shutter so not in the same lineage of speed at all it's they've gotten so far off track at this point by the end of it and they sold off to Toyo in 1972 and. In about 1973 you have western division western division was western united states covering sales service etc for graphlex up until 1973. well the three people who owned that at the point or were working it up and just bought it from graphlex during all this this sell-off to toyo they purchased the one western division location and all the stock that they had and they continued doing service for about like the next 13-14 years and at a point, I think they ran low on stock. They had a guy from outside of things come in and he was like, literally me in the 19, well, not literally me, but uh, someone in their shop or garage in the 1980s was sitting on, uh, turning springs out on a lathe, doing all these replacement parts for Western Division, keeping up the exact same lineage that existed here. And so you have this, this part stock that Western Division owned and that ended up changing hands a couple more times. Someone bought it with intentions to start up repair, didn't do anything. Going back to Post Graphlex here, though, when we're on like the last legs of this, there is a part stock from Western Division from the 70s that's floating around hands now from private stock to private stock. And eventually, a man by the name of Fred Lustig purchases this stock, which is a bunch of camera bodies that were never sold. Um, I think he ended up selling off stuff, but then boxes and boxes of screws, original, all of this and that parts. And Fred Lustig was the last real Graphlex mechanic. Um, he was a tool and die maker. I think he, or his dad was a tool die maker. I think he was like a, something for Mercedes or something or another. So he was a pretty affluent man who was doing late life projects of rekindling Graphlex and, and doing all this. And he had a bunch of good projects in mind and he ended up passing in, I believe, 2010. And on his passing, he ended up selling or his his widow sold off a large amount of his part stock and whatever uh, they could afford to John Menix. And so if you know John Menix of the Arrow Liberator, John Menix is essentially the last inheritor of the last part stock that came from the original graphics factories and stuff in 1970. So John Menix possesses this this small small amount of original part stock but it's still dwindling and that's where why when i came into the scene i knew all this was aware like existed but for me i don't have a, a box of screws from the 70s that i can go to when i lose a screw on the floor i have to go make the screw for myself um
1: i tried to get john on the show he lives about a half hour away from me but he just moved into like rural uh like the area where all the springs are and he doesn't have fast internet connection he couldn't Got a couldn't get a, a Zoom connection to
3: work. Well, then in, in 1958, Bessler came out with a model called a C-6, which was their military, it was made for the Air Force because the Air Force still wanted speed graphics and couldn't get them. Bessler came out with a model called a C-6 that uh, they used uh, in their kits. But then there was also, Theo, don't you have a Birkin James?
4: No, no, I have um, I have a Hus Pressman. A um, Bush right, Pressman, yes, right here. Which um, so I mean, when we talk about the the Graflex cameras, we, we I mean, we should mention the clones and the, the ones that I mean, this this you can tell it's know yeah, modelled on the on the Graflex. Um, it's got the rotating back. Interesting enough, with the Bush Pressman, the one of the main problems with them is the actual lens board is so small. That whole throat of the camera is so small, so you, you do struggle to get bigger bigger lenses on it. But there's an interesting story with this one. I've got this camera here. I bought it a few years ago and I opened up the back and I bought it from the US. So I opened up the back and someone's actually scribbled their name in it and their address. So I look up the name and I can say it's Claire Wood without giving any, any other uh, big details away. And um, it had an address in Santa Barbara. So I, I look it up, that address is gone and it's demolished and as old apartment building and stuff there now. But I look it up and I find out that Claire actually shot postcards for all the motels across Santa Barbara in the 50s. And they're actually quite collectible. So I start looking for the postcards and I've actually got two original postcards here shot with that camera in the 50s. So that's kind of interesting. So um, this, this uh, ends up with this Bush Pressman that's actually got some really interesting lineage or uh, well, provenance back to um, a photographer who I've actually managed to get some original pictures from. So I'm, I'm absolutely stoked on that. And I've been using that to, to make 4x5s here in Sydney. And it's a fantastic camera, uh, even with the original Graflex Optar lens on it. And i think i guess that's something to to sort of consider with these cameras too they've been around for a long time and they've seen a lot of things and uh yeah, yeah it, you know i've got the the p uh, ph 47e i mentioned earlier and that's got actually got the the military red stamp on it as well so that's obviously gone somewhere and um it will be late in the war because i think that's the 44 45 model but you yeah, know, it's obviously gone somewhere. It's been deployed. It's taken pictures of something quite interesting. now my like it's probably just inventory, inventory or something like that. But it's still quite interesting. Uh, uh, another uh, American competitor to
6: Graphlex for the graphic uh, press type cameras was uh, Burke and James, uh, which I think was in Chicago, and uh, they made a press camera called the Watson. There was also a British competitor, a Micro Micro Precision products that made a quite well-regarded press camera
1: my favorite bit about my burke and james is that they uh they hired ouija to do the the manual and uh you know ouija was famous for using his 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 speed graphic and somehow burke and james thought they were going to get some of that ouija magic by uh having these incredibly corny photographs of him demonstrating how to use the burke and james camera as if it were some sort of like comic book illustration
3: anthony you said you had a burke and james which one do you have do you recall All right anthony's going to grab something i'm curious nick marshall is here he's been very quiet are you a, are you a graphic shooter nick uh
11: starting to yeah you know i i kind of avoided getting into large format for a long time because i didn't want to have to deal with the you know developing and scanning and stuff and i'm pretty hardcore on instant film polaroid pack film and stuff so i've seen a lot of good good results with that and i decided to just dive in a couple years ago so yeah i picked up like a three by four series d it's kind of like a little miniature lunchbox very heavy miniature lunchbox series d for a good deal this was like kh i don't know why they sell bargain bargain deals that are perfectly look perfectly good and then i also got a couple speed graphics recently and i planning to try and shoot an event uh this coming weekend um with the uh, Lomo Graflak back I just got, so I'm gonna to try to fix up a speed graphic. Just gonna use the um, the leaf shutter because the the focal plane shutter is maybe a little too. Uh, I don't I don't know how how the timing is on that, but the leaf shutter seems okay. I yeah definitely planning on using the. Uh, I got a f- Four x five speed graphic here. I'm gonna try that with the Lomo Graph Lock. Uh coming up this week, I gotta just fix up a couple things, make sure the make sure the range finder is all aligned and everything. But yeah, it looks cool. Looks which
3: weird. lens is which lens is on that camera. This
11: one, this one is uh it's called the uh it's a Wallensack 135 F four point seven. One of the one of the cool things on this one I don't see very often this is I mean, there's a lot of weird like you know, add-ons and things people made for the Graphlex. This one has the, uh, it's called the woolen sock sunshade, which is basically like a lens hood that clamps onto the uh, lens. But the entire, there's like a little arm that reaches down and grabs the aperture lever on the bottom. So instead of having to look at the bottom of the shutter to see the aperture, the aperture numbers are all up on the top of the sunshade. And you just rotate the entire shade and you don't have to look at the bottom of the aperture, bottom of the shutter to see the apertures, which is kind of a kind of a cool little thing. I, I honestly had never seen that one before.
3: Anthony, Anthony's back. What do you got there? You know, I don't know
1: if this thing has a model or not. It just says b Press, patent pending, Burke and James, Chicago. And it's got a, a Rapex uh shutter and a Sack 6 and 3 eighths. Volo Stigmat lens.
3: Okay, is it a black lens board? Yes. And the product's black, yeah. That's the only model I think they ever made was just the Burke and James Press. It's a, I mean, it's a very rudimentary
1: camera, but it works perfectly fine. It's got a rotating back.
3: You know, it's uh, it's got the
1: uh, CalArt finder on the side, which kind of sort of works.
3: Yeah, it's a Chicago camera. They had, The Burley Brooks was the distributor and Burke and James was the maker. That was dated from the early... Fifties, I think, up to maybe the early sixties. Well, you know, like I said before,
1: I bought this camera for around fifty dollars just to see if I liked four by five. And you know, perhaps we can use this as as a segue, um, because you know, I wanted Jess to come on, I wanted Eric to come on uh, to talk about. uh, You know, there's there's more about shooting these cameras than just getting the cameras and shooting them. You know, you want to actually use them as cameras. You're going to learn how to. What it takes to shoot and develop these cameras or these films. So I just wanted to, a few perspectives because it's a it's intimidating. I mean, it's a big learning curve. There's a lot of of, of like old archaic parts and a lot of, of of crotchety old guys with a lot of opinions. But as far as uh you know coming up with like a a, a like a battle plan for so you 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 bought your Speed Graphic, what next? So I was hoping maybe we could we could touch upon that. I mean, for me, the first thing, of course, is I didn't know anything about film holders. Went online, went onto eBay, bought a bunch of really crappy, beat to hell plastic film holders that all had light leaks. And uh, it took me a while before I actually built up a library of uh, 15 or 20 film holders that I could trust. But then, the, of course, the bigger issue was, uh, as somebody who had only developed w- uh, 120 film and and 35 millimeter, is is where do you even begin? Uh, in this day and age of uh home developing four by five and what are the best techniques and what are the, you know, do you, do you, I'm just, I'm curious to find what other people have found to be useful.
0: So I I personally use a Jobo system and I, I use their extension drums and I cobble up this Frankenstein. Like when I would do four by five, I use a CPP two processor, which has a bigger motor, by the way. So it can handle a lot more fluid up to a thousand millimeters. Uh milliliters and uh for four by five, I would do 18 sheets at a time, and then for five by seven, I would do 12 sheets at once. Wow, <laughs> you could do that with a C- so yeah. that one. Just, just don't do that with the smaller jobo, the the CPE 2 Don't do that, you'll burn out the motor. But for the C CPA and the CPPP, yes, they have a bigger motor and you can do that. And I actually uh opened one uh, fun tidbit. I opened one up once um to fix it and the motor was actually a uh, car window actuator so it's, it's the same motor that was used to control car mo- car windows so that was a fun fact to find
12: out oh a, a good setup to start developing four by five I think is the a uh, steam and breast tank it's a it's a very small I think it's less than 100 bucks and it allows you to do four sheets at a time and Uh, It uses very little chemistry. It's super easy to use. Uh, It's not, you don't have to fiddle with it in the dark. So I think that's a very good uh, like starter one. Uh, And for most people, four sheets at a time, I think is good. I think soon it's gonna release one that uh, allows you to develop six sheets at a time. He he announced it recently. Um, And another good one to get started on on 4x5 is uh, there's this 3D printed one that, that fits on a Patterson tank that is called the Beast. Um, it allows you to develop six sheets and it's a uh, I mean I probably if you have been shooting film for a while you have a patterson tank right and use one liter potato, Patterson tank and that and that's it uh, and, and and that's kind of it and I think that if, if you have a um you got yourself a graphics camera just buy some cheap from a pan just to, to to try it and uh a hey, might actually work out of the box right um and developing is not that different compared with developing any other black and white film.
8: I was gonna say for for starting out, paper negatives are great because you can work with them underneath the safe flight. You can cut them down to whatever damn size. I actually bought a three by four speed graphic to thinking it was a four by five. And then I was like, this is not a four by a son of a... There were a lot of swear words involved because you can't get that film, right? And the film holders I got were wrong. So I had to recalibrate everything. Um, so paper negatives are great, they're cheap, you know, you can handle them with a safe light. do whatever you want, develop them, you can do all sorts of things with them. Um, it's a little bit harder to get now than it was when I started doing this, but x-ray film, the Kodak B RA stuff, it's single-sided, so it has an antihalation layer on one side and emulsion on the other side. I think there still might be one company making single-sided x-ray film, also insanely cheap, you just cut it down to size also handleable underneath the red light. Um, if you develop it well, you can get full, I did Route 66 with, um, not a speed graphic, but with a travel wide four by five on a bike with that film. And it's it was great. Um, also the Aristo litho film is dirt cheap and comes in four by five and eight by 10. Again, red light handleable, you can just watch it develop, you just sort of get it dialed in and um, When you really get used to that stuff, you can just mess with it because as it develops, you can play with it. You can put chemistry on it as it goes. You can create effects. You can get it as smooth as glass, or you can just mess with it and create artifacts through chemistry, right? Um, For both paper and litho ortho x-ray stuff. Um, And then once you have that stuff down, like I've used the Liberty, people hate the Liberty daylight tanks, um, but I've used the Liberty tanks and they're pretty good for stand development. Like they get weird agitation artifacts depending on how you use them, but you can put 12 sheets of four by five in one of those. And I think they cost like 30 bucks. And if you're doing a stand development, they're freaking great. And they're they're kind of bulletproof. They're not, I won't say idiot proof because I've messed stuff up, up in them and I'm certainly an idiot, but um, but they're also really great, great alternative. I've done mass developed 12 sheets at a pop for like six hours in a row coming off of big projects like that. But yeah, but for just starting out. Paper negatives or the aristolitho. You can watch it. You can do whatever you want to with it, and then once you're comfortable, move on from there. I've been shooting the
3: Cat Labs uh, 100 film, the stuff they just recently started shipping, and that's uh, that's worked out real well. Jess, what are you shooting? Are you shooting any? Uh...
13: Um. So. I feel a little bit of like a fish out of water here because I only shoot with an Intrepid. (laughs) I don't actually own a Graflex. Um, But other than that, uh, for film, I've been experimenting with Ilford HP5 because that's my favorite uh, black and white film uh, and some Kodak Ektar, because that's my favorite color film. And I think I got like three sheets in on the black and white stuff and just jumped right into the color. It's not cheap, but. I absolutely love it. So I've been having a lot of fun with that.
3: So you're using the four by five intrepid
13: four by five. Yeah. Four by five mark five. Yeah.
9: Jess, I do have to say um, I did comment on one of your photos. Uh, I think you wrote a story about the trees and their significance. Yeah. And I just thought that shot was absolutely gorgeous.
13: Oh, Thank you so much. I, I do remember seeing your comment. I th- I, I hope I responded. Yeah, you
9: did. <laughs> okay, it <was> about, good. <laughs> uh, our bodies turning back into the dirt. In the right. <laughs> yes.
13: Yes. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, that's one of my absolute favorite trees. Yeah, I, I photograph mostly in the woods with my Intrepid. Uh, or actually should say exclusively at this point. I don't think I've brought it out anywhere else so far, um, but that's what I really wanted it for because I took the Mamiya RB67 out into the woods with me all the time. And so I thought that 4x5 would just kind of give that extra oomph that I was looking for uh, in my images. And I, I actually think that it does a pretty good job um, Of course, you know, I'm going to end up making mistakes along the way, for sure. I've spent a few hundred dollars on color film alone. So, (laughs) you know, mistake number one. Um, But I'm really excited to keep exploring. Are are you
3: processing your own film or are you sending it out to the lab?
13: So the black and white I process at home. um, I actually use a Stearman press tank. Uh, Eric gave me the... uh, the heads up on that one when I was starting out, because I wasn't sure how to get started, if I should use an answer to in my Patterson tank or not. And he suggested the Stearman Press. So I said, OK, I'm just going to get that and not even fiddle around with anything else. Uh, for color, though, right now, I still have it dropped off at my lab in Montreal um, because I'm just... I've never done color development before. Uh, I know it's easy. I know it's not necessarily supposed to be more difficult than black and white or anything. I just haven't actually taken the jump uh, to start doing it. And I have very limited space. So, all my space is for my black and white chemicals, uh, which, because I'm a little bit of a control freak, <laughs> I don't like having my black and white developed by other people. Uh, so, that Takes up all my space right now, but I do eventually want to actually process my own color so that I can make it just that much cheaper to shoot in four by five.
1: So, Jess, is the Intrepid gonna surplant the RB67 as the greatest camera ever made? <laughs> uh
13: I i doubt it honestly i doubt it that is just my absolute favorite camera that thing is going to the grave with me uh but the intrepid it already has a really big place in my heart though um it's just a fantastic camera to play around with and i am really enjoying using it and it's a little bit lighter than the rb so that's also kind of a bonus for it um i I don't know, maybe ask me again in a few years, once I've had a little bit more experience with the intrepid, what I what I think at that point, as of now, no, the RB is still still my baby.
1: I will say that if if you all haven't seen them, Jess has been publishing on YouTube, uh, the sort of winter uh, series of her taking photos out in the woods around her farm. Uh and I highly recommend, you know, I don't watch a lot of YouTube videos uh from different camera people, but I do watch all of Jess's and it's just it's really delightful to watch her process as she's walking and framing and then showing you the, the results. Uh and it, it has been quite impressive to see your 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 uh, taking to the four by five as as well as you have.
3: Yeah, it'd be great, Jess. If you could send us your link to your YouTube channel. Yes. Yeah, we'll sure. put it in the show notes so everyone can see them. I'd I'd love to see them too. You know I don't have I don't have a
1: Stearman press tank, but a friend did give me a combi plan tank, which I assume is somewhat similar to the Stearman tank. Um it has uh Paul, you know about this. You said it was uh was this but from the guy that imported Rolly? Yeah, HP
3: Marketing was uh
1: the importer for for HP for a combi. And what's interesting about it, it has this this the this, this sort of crystal plastic insert that you can dial in for different sheets. And so I also uh, the the other uh, sheet film camera that I love shooting is my my uh, Voigtlander Bergheil, and it doesn't really fit on any of the other uh, tanks that I have. I've got the Mod 54 insert, and I would try to taco them in here, and they'd always come loose and, and cause issues when I would develop, but with this uh, combi plan, uh, you can literally just shrink down the size of the slots that it goes into. And it's got a little guide that they feed into. And I, I did six sheets the other day and they, they came out just perfectly developed. It's a really cool tank. Also, just one thing to look out for. I had a friend that gave me a hundred sheets of chrome four by five. Oh. And so I've been home developing my uh, Chrome 4x5, and that is a thrill when you pull that out of the soup and you you hold it up to the light the first time. And if you've never seen a 4x5 reversal, it, it kind of makes your heart go pitter-pat. That's yeah. exciting.
13: Uh, Provia is actually one of my favorite slide films. I love shooting that in the RB. Uh, so I'm actually hoping to pick some up in four x five. I don't know if that one was been discontinued, but anyways, before all the Fuji film disappears. Uh, but uh, I'm definitely keeping my eyes open on eBay for any kind of four x five slide film that I can find. <laughs> I, I
4: use a hundred F in Provia hundred F in my four uh, x five, and it is fantastic. Oh, nice. Um, to, to Anthony's point, it's fantastic when you hold it up and, and you just just see all those colors.
3: Yeah. Amazing. Hey, Daniel Daniel was holding up some cool stuff earlier.
14: Oh, yeah. I, I just picked up this Super D from eBay. Um, I got it for a really good price. I think a really good price. I got it for $500. Um, yeah. It is the older uh, Super D model. And you know I've been doing everything Graham has told me not to do. So I've taken out the curtain. I've put silicone oil on the curtain. I've uh, done some other experimenting things because my curtain actually—it's—it's it's, from what I've heard the Super D curtains. Graham, maybe you can explain They Usually, are pretty good, but this one seems like the older one style rubber. The other thing is it like Actually, it's three by four, and it came with the six by nine back. And so that was really like, so I actually shoot some medium format with it. Some other gear that I have, maybe a little, I mean, if we can see it in the background here, it is a Graflex enlarging camera that's been converted into... 11 by 14, and you know I, I used the rare Graflex 3 by 4 as the shutter for my barrel lenses. That's some of the gear I have. That's Graflex, and uh, the 11 by 14 is going to be really wild. I'm Andy is uh, photo famine chat is going to be helping me a little bit with trying to figure out
3: how to shoot that. Shooting. Last last episode, Greg joined us, and at the very end of the episode, he he showed us a picture of his combat graphic. And and you
15: also have a pH forty, the case minus <laughs> <Huh>. the camera. <laughs> that's right. You had so, the case, and the accessories. I have everything in the case except the camera and the tripod. It had that uh, olive green tripod in the front. Um, so I, I know I can replace the camera pretty easy because it's just I think from what everything I've gathered, it was a pacemaker, right? I think but, that's uh, that. I think that tripod might be a little hard to find, especially in olive green and uh, you know that went in that kit, but I mean, even if I just get the camera, it's still a pretty, pretty complete kit. Well, uh, the the uh, the combat graphic you had was just beautiful,
3: and you had all the lenses for it, as I recall.
15: He, yeah, I mean, so the the guy that gave me that to you're going to love this story is, you know, I, I'm retired military. He's a retired military photo mate, but he was in a little bit older. He's older than me, and he said that in the '80s. We have this thing, it's called defense reutilization where all equipment is supposed to go to, to be sold to the public. If it's uh, you know, if it's got some value, so the government can get some money back and there was a list, a lot of camera gear was stored in Philadelphia and somebody said, oh yeah, we've got all these old cameras. And so the guy said, well, send them down here to us in Norfolk, Virginia. And they thought it was like a triwall where the cameras, one well, 18 wheeler showed up full of those camera kits those um, graphics camera kits. <laughs> so needless to say, they had way too many. And so I think they kind of just handed them out. Remember, somebody was talking about how uh, cameras disappeared in the military. Um, they handed them out as gifts to everybody in the command. And then they got rid of the rest of them because, you know, this is like 82. So those cameras were long past their useful lifetime, uh, especially for 70 mil. Um, anyway, that's I got that kit from a guy that was uh, part of my group. And, yeah, it's got all three lenses. The flash, it's still got the little tag on it from probably when it was inventoried by somebody in the military when it was issued. I don't think it was ever been used. Can
5: I comment on this really quick? Sure. <laughs> um So so if we're talking about the the rangefinder, the combat rangefinder Graflex. Graph, yeah, the huge one. Um, really interesting. Uh, that actually got canceled halfway through manufacturing. So the ones that exist that were actually in the military's hands would have been whatever the, the, the trial batch would have been, where initially there was supposed to be a batch of 500 of a civilian 500 military. The, the military 500 was going to be fulfilled first. Both orders were actually canceled, and so no one actually knows the definitive ship unit number for either of them all we know is that there are maybe like 400 and some kits of the comp, which is crazy that there's only like 400 and some, maybe 500 at the max for the, the olive trap green ones. And then even fewer than that is we have some civilian ones that came painted black from, from factory. And like, like I said before, like sometimes the, the green cameras that were in military hands just got painted black anyway, but there were ones that actually did come out of the factory in a black paint. And it it would have been a thing where they would have been partially through manufacturing, and the government probably got like two, three hundred of them, and they're like, "This is all like we don't need this anymore." Like the the, the necessity for it in what the military was going to do with it anyway, it just it was gone. You know, we had smaller cameras, better cameras. Also, the the combat Graphlex has its own issues for servicing. It's not a very reliable camera system. Um, but what we get is maybe four hundred some units, and then a scant couple black civilian units that come up on eBay every few years. But uh, technically in the book, both have been completely strike throughed, crossed out, uh, both 500-unit batches. So just, sorry, (laughs) interesting note on top of that. Yeah, Yeah. so effectively, the only ones that would have been used would have been, like, experimentally used. They would have not actually been used for real purposes, so.
15: Well, I mean, I've talked to several guys in my group. I know that camera was designed back in the 50s, and I'm going to assume it was probably a reaction to the Korean War is more than likely what it was. Um, and that's probably why it got canceled because the Korean War was so short that by the time they got the manufacturing spun up and everything, you know, it was too late. Well, I'm sorry. I mean, guys <laughs> in my group and they said they've actually remember using that camera in the Navy because you know it was made for the Army. Yep. Um, but they, yeah, you know, you know it is stuff, stuff. ends up on a shelf and somebody orders it and they get it. Um, and and they remember using it. So it, it was used. at. Maybe not in war, but during wartime, if you will. (laughs) Well, and that's
5: also the military. You know, you're not just going to leave a few hundred. Well, and also part of it was they probably were trying to get a few units to be using the cameras to try them out for a couple of years before they just didn't want to continue the contract at all and just let it fizzle. Um, But you look at if not to talk about guns but if you follow like firearms manufacturing history from the time too there's a lot of other things that during the korean war we had a lot of ideas and we tried to get like different programs together and then they 1953 hits and the money's no longer there for those projects so it's like okay just pull the contracts let's go back to what we're doing rethink things for the 1960s and then vietnam happens and there's all that with the (laughs) m16 so gone
9: But- I've got a sort of a different sort of a question, um, not about gear, but just about maybe the philosophy of all this. Um, I know it was mentioned earlier that, like, back in the 80s, um, you know, the Graflex 4x5, all, you know, large format was going out of fashion and people were kind of ditching them uh, hand over fist. But now it seems like I see a lot more people using you know Graflex or uh you know whatever kind of cameras intrepid's making cameras four by five cameras why do you think there's um anybody here why do you think there's uh kind of an upswing in people wanting to shoot these old style cameras uh where you know that they're kind of difficult to use what what is the deal behind it you think well, I'll tell you one thing. If if
10: you ever go down the rabbit hole of printing from a negative directly, making actual prints with an enlarger, uh, and scanning works brilliantly, but printing from a from there is something about a print made from, from a from a from a a large format negative that is astonishing. The gradation, the sharpness, so you get an image quality, a look that's real hard to duplicate through other means.
9: I. I guess I I would have to agree. I um I only recently myself like I have a wife that <laughs> shoots large format. I myself have only very recently, I'm saying within the last week, have gotten into medium format and I am just blown away at you know a cheap film um the uh mm-hmm. Kentmere 100 the clarity of that film in medium format is just astounding compared to 35 millimeters. So I can only imagine what it would look like in four by five.
10: Yeah, it really is remarkable. I mean, even folks who know nothing about imaging or anything else will see uh, a, a print uh, made from a large format negative and they go, Oh my God, it's so clear. Cause there really is just something almost visceral. And I've always thought it's, it's gradation, but whatever it, it's, it, it it's something you can see on the print.
8: I think it's, um, not only just for large format, but for film in general. Um, My experience, uh, my wife has two sons who are now in their 20s, right? That I've known them since they were their teens when she and I started dating. Um, So through high school, and I've been shooting film for, well, all entirely. Like, this is what I learned on is is film. Um, And when you break out a film camera of any kind, that generation is like, what's that? Because all they've ever done is produce something digital they've rarely been able to create art that they can then hold in their hand and say i did this right and so they there seems to be a lot of fascination with the physicality of it right the physicality of the process the physicality um of the end product and the fact that you can't just you can wing it i wing it gratuitously a lot and that's just Part of me breaking a lot of eggs but um but you really have to like pay attention and and for the people who fall fallen in love with large format it's that too like the spades right you need to really dial it in and like get it in control and figure out what you're doing and and not make any crazy mistakes um and it's almost like the processes, I won't say like religious, but it's almost therapeutic, right? Like you do this thing, you do this thing, you do this thing. And depending on, on, on how far down the rabbit hole you go, like you can go everywhere from like, you can cut your own film, load your film holders, make your own damn camera if you want to, right? You can make a sliding box camera. I've done that. It's actually really interesting. You can make your own damn lenses. It's not actually that hard. Like you can do the whole thing from making your own medium to develop the film every single step of the process. And if you make the slightest mistake, it's on nobody but you, right? And every single triumph of success is also on you. And that's a really magical thing, I think, um, speaking personally and also for like a lot of folks who um, like don't get to have that physicality and don't get to have that kind of control, creative control in their life, right? Um, So I think... I think film in general has seen a resurgence because of aspects, various aspects of
4: that. <laughs> uh, Marcy, I think you just grabbed something to, to show us there.
16: There we go. So yeah, this one, I, you know, we have a big uh, camera show out here, the Puget Sound Photographic Collector Society. as it one every spring and whenever I go, I don't need to buy anything because people give me stuff all the time. But yeah, this is the a four by five that somebody made, but they gave, to me another person gave it to me we don't really know exactly where it came from but it takes some facts there and and it's super easy to use it's got well it's got film in it right now so i won't open it but uh just you know pull it up for the shutter little level on the top if you care to have your images straight up and down but another thing i got there and i don't know i uh, imagine everybody but i didn't see anybody mention this one is that the tanks that we were talking about. This is an old bake light one. And I use this all the time. They just slide in. Does anybody know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, that's that's a
8: Yankee. I have, okay. that's the one I mentioned. I the two okay. models, They're actually adjustable. They'll go. They'll adjust down yeah. to two by three.
16: Yeah, it goes three down. Three by four, four it's by five. Yeah, You can yeah. use them for all kinds of things. I really like it. But anyway. Yeah. That's just People bad.
8: hate on them because they're hard to agitate and get good agitation. Huh. But if, if you're
3: careful,
16: they're okay. <laughs> And the educational
8: things is lift
3: and drop.
16: <laughs> Not too hard though. It's basically no,
3: no. Just lift one side <laughs> and then drop it, and then lift the other side and
1: drop Oh yeah, it.
16: yeah, yeah.
3: Anthony, what time is it?
1: It's time to start wrapping up. Who would have thought that there was so much to say about Graphlex? And, and
3: we didn't touch so much stuff that I wanted to talk about, but uh, we we may have to do a part two Graflex uh, episode uh, like we did on Pentax.
1: Does anybody have uh You know, we've got a, a great panel here. We've got a lot of very interesting people with a lot of historical perspective. Are there any last questions before we uh, we wrap this up for the night?
3: Well, thank you all for coming. Uh, Graham, thanks so much for coming by. It was it was terrific to have you with us, and uh, we want to get the uh, get your link to uh, to your website to post in the show notes.
5: Oh yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me having me on. I'm I'm not usually like a podcast listener per se, but I. This was an absolutely fun chat. Um, if you want to get a hold of me or, or find me the things that I'm I'm doing or, or anything that I'm into, uh, I'll I'll get I'll send you my link itself. But I I just go by Graphlex Parts on my website, on my Facebook, Instagram, all that stuff. So yep.
3: I think Anthony has the way to get in touch with you. So we'll post all that in our show notes and uh, awesome. And thanks everybody for coming. And uh, I know you you probably we've all missed Mike being here tonight. Mike is a little under the weather this evening so he's uh he's resting comfortably at this point and uh and we we hope
4: he uh he recovers soon so anything else to say anthony or theo what do you think we're going to do next week i mean we've lost mike so I, i'm not sure how we're going to go forward with this
1: you know by the time we do the next show hopefully i'll have a box from australia here and i know that you had a reciprocal box from uh ohio that showed up uh in australia and paul i know that you're always having cameras rolling in so what do you say we just do a show where we talk about what's going on with our own lives and get caught up and uh and just see what cool new cameras we're playing with this week
3: yeah we'll just have a couple of beers and talk about mike about what a great guy he was and how much we're going to miss him that sounds like fun let's do that the next episode
4: sounds good sounds to sounds me good. i'm in for that
3: well, we, we said we were going to get Robot Mike. Robot Mike was going to make an appearance, but uh,
1: apparently the only graphics he's ever shot is the jet with the CO2 cartridge. I mean, that's a
3: claim to fame. Who the hell else has shot one of those? <laughs> yeah. Who it. else has had on one that worked? <laughs> All right, guys. Oh. Thanks so much, and uh, we look forward to having you visit us again sometime. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Good, Good night. You.
4: Bye. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye.
8: Anthony? How did I how did I get in the hospital? We're supposed to be talking about Greyflex right now, aren't we? Where's where's my camera bag at? I had my contacts one and my Kodak Medalist in there.
9: Oh man. Those guys.